Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Ted, you've been involved in doing the really hard lifting in the area of UFO research for for a heck of a long time. Uh, You're someone who has gone out to reported landing sites and collected evidence. How in God's name did you get involved in this field? Because it seems like you're almost an anomaly in in terms of the people who who inhabit this realm. How did you get involved in this? What's your background? You know, at this point, in my life, I actually feel like an anomaly, but an old one. And uh, so I've even been called almost mythical, but uh, which is probably true. But well, I, you see, uh, in my case, Ted, they actually think I'm a myth uh, or a horror <laughs> show. I'm not sure which. But go ahead, please. Yeah, I've been to those. No, I my interest started as really a little kid, nine, ten years old, because I was big into astronomy and uh, meteorology and. I uh, volunteered for what was then called the, uh, uh, what was it, Civil Observation Corps or something. I don't, it's been too many years. And, uh, I started hearing, you know, reports over the uh, short waves of, uh, of UFO sightings, flying saucers in those days. And I knew some of the people involved and I thought, well, you know, these are really reliable folks. And if they claim they're seeing something, then perhaps they are. And then my father introduced me to a World War II bomber pilot who had seen uh, what then was called a Foo Fighter, Mm -hmm. a circular bright object that uh, flew beneath the complement of bombers. And all the crews, pilots, so on, saw this thing. And uh, the bombers were actually uh, rocked as it flew under the planes. And after it had passed the flight, it suddenly reversed direction and flew over them, again rocking the bombers. So after talking to this guy, you know, I I really was seriously interested. And uh, then in 1964, when the Socorro, New Mexico landing took place, my wife and I journeyed down and did uh, a little bit of uh, personal investigation and uh, were fortunate enough to talk to Lonnie Zamora, the witness. And uh, what I didn't know at that time was J. Allen Hynek was there. And uh, it would be four years later then that he and I would get together. And uh, at his suggestion in 1968, I started specializing in uh, landing cases involving physical residue, physical evidence. And uh, because we had so many cases coming in that it was not possible to uh, to investigate all of the cases or even a small percentage. And Alan was, was very much down on lights in the night sky, that sort of thing. If it wasn't close, if it didn't have multiple witnesses, he really wasn't that interested. And uh, I, I certainly uh, found that to be a good philosophy. And so at any rate, in uh, 1969, I gave my first presentation uh, at a symposium, and we had 157 physical trace cases. And I remember uh, on the front row, for that lecture, which, which really made me uh, a little nervous, uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, J. Allen Hynek, Jacques Vallée, and uh, Walt Andrus. And everyone thought 157 trace cases, you know, that's incredible. And we're sitting here today with 3,389 
from 92 countries. And I'm absolutely convinced that that really represents uh, a low percentage of the actual events because they just don't get reported. And uh, so it's been quite a, a rewarding process for me. Uh, and, I, you know, it's, I'm just as enthusiastic about this stuff today as I was in 1964 or 68. So Alan was... A dear friend, and he uh, uh, took me under his wing for some reason and uh, introduced me to a lot of folks that were of tremendous help to me in getting up on, for example, doing soil sampling, trace research, trace investigations on site in the proper way. And uh, because obviously you can have the best case in the world, and if you go in and screw everything up, uh, you've screwed everything up, but it's uh, it's been fun, and it still is fun. I'm really as active now as I was back then. We do have less of the uh, the older type objects seen. By that I mean the uh, classic flying saucer, metallic surface, 30 feet in diameter, landing on three legs, or the uh, squirrel type object landing on four. Little guys hopping out and doing whatever they do. And uh, in the last few years, the last five, six, seven years, the larger classic objects have kind of gone away. And what I'm seeing are many, many more of the, uh, the very small objects, four feet in diameter down to the size of a baseball. And uh, I am truly fascinated by those things because most people get closer to them and uh, they have they have some really incredible observations and that's what we're dealing with uh, primarily now are those types of observations when did that transition occur ted i mean was this an, abdru- an abrupt transition or was it gradual it seemed to be gradual the classic saucers uh, of course are still seen but not that often anymore uh, we were getting back in, uh, for example, the 70s, in a good year, we were getting several of those types of cases with landing effects every month. And as a matter of fact, there was no way that you could keep up with all of the landing cases that were taking place. And those have decreased or the public is not uh, reporting them. I, I'm not really quite sure. But uh, And, of course, if you're dealing with something that's the size of a baseball or a basketball, fewer people will likely see it than a 30-foot metal disc. And uh, so that, that could be some cause for the drop uh, in numbers. Let me ask you in terms of physical traces, are we talking about a depression in the grass or in the sand? What is the normal effect that you tend to find? There are three primary uh trace effects, and that is a burned or scorched site, a depressed site, or which <laughs> I can relate to the depression part, but are dehydrated. And the dehydrated are, uh, as far as I'm concerned, much more interesting than the other two, although they all, they all have their own place. And the incredible thing that I've found in all these cases is that over the years, for example, after I was really into it and familiar with, with what I was doing, I could talk to witnesses on a case I really knew nothing about, and uh, from their description of the object and what it did, 
I could go to the site pretty well knowing what I would find. These things repeat themselves over and over again. A, a specific type of object generates specific types of traces. And uh, so that really increased my belief that uh, this was something physical as far as the object and then the generating of the, uh, of the effects and uh, end of mass and under intelligent control. And those are not speculation. They're based on data. And uh, so I don't know how you could deal with anything more significant in, in the area of UFOs than those kinds of cases. Well, certainly when you're looking for some positive evidence, it's a lot better than lights in the sky. But then when you yes. mention that there are specific types of physical traces by specific types of craft, would you maybe mm -hmm. kind of discuss that right now? Yeah, what what you would find over and over again, uh, the classic saucer, the 30, 35-foot disc, described by uh, mobile witnesses as metallic, and I have to point out immediately that a lot of these cases are in daylight. There seems to be this uh, idea that everything is seen in the dark by one guy, and he's just come out of a tavern. And that is far, far from the truth. The uh, multiple witness cases make up nearly 50% of this 3,389 reports, and the daylight cases make up about 35%. And so when the uh, the classic uh, saucer comes down, it lands on three landing gear, uh, which normally have a, uh, a circular landing pad that uh, encounters the ground. And uh, I have been able to do compression tests on uh, a number of those uh, landing pad marks, indentations, uh, indicating that the object weighed on the order of 10 to 14 tons. So this is a physical object with mass. And uh, typically in those types of objects, you would find a scorched area, burning of, uh, of bushes and grass and so on, inside an area pretty well the size of the object itself, 30, 35 feet in diameter. And the site would be circular. And uh, those kind of objects also, uh, in many cases, generate uh, extensive tree damage, knocking down of, entire, of an entire tree or large limbs or whatever. And the next type would be the Sakura-type object, which is oval or egg-shaped and about 18, 20 feet long. And those types of objects would land on four landing legs, and uh, many times would have, as in Sakura, a rectangular foot pad, which would go pretty deep into the ground into some really hard soil, and also indicated uh, weight in the range of about 14 tons. And in some of the cases, not many, but a few of the cases, I've actually been able to get there early on enough to find uh, uh, what witnesses claimed were uh, the footprints of some of the little guys, and they were small, and the uh, compaction on the soil indicated that they weighed about 60 pounds, which would, of course, go along with something three, three and a half feet tall, thin, spindly bodies, which is what the majority of the uh, humanoid cases represent. 20% of this 3389 uh, involve humanoids, and about 96% of those are the small guys.
you know, we don't run into a lot of reptilians or Bigfoot or anything like that. Hmm. And uh, so it is repeatable, and uh, statistically it's amazing how consistent these things have been down through the years. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer, because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 1995, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 1999 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to someone who gets down and dirty with UFO trace evidence, Ted Phillips, associated with Center for Physical Trace Research. And before we go on, you have an ongoing organization here. You have a team 
of people who actually go out and investigate these things, right? Absolutely, yes. We started out of the uh, Center for Physical Trace Research, which I initiated in 1998, a team that we call the SIU, Special Investigations Unit. We started that uh, a year ago last January, and with a different idea. You know, I for all these years, I've scrounged around after the fact, picking up uh, breadcrumbs after the object was long gone, which is good, but you're missing the prime show. And so uh, the primary goal of the SIU is to insert the team into currently active sites in order to obtain real-time uh, imaging and research. And we've already had uh, some success at that at one of our active sites. And um, what we do at the website, which is ufophysical.com, we post current investigations, some of them actually streaming video from the site itself. So uh, website visitors can not only get the data, but they can kind of go along with us. And if we see something, they see it in real time. And uh, we have uh, some plans to uh, enhance that. Uh, that's a dream that I've had for a long, long time. And one thing I've always believed in is the sharing of data. None of this reporting something that goes into a black hole and you never hear anything beyond that. Right now, uh, our primary projects are what we call the Marley Woods, which is a very active site I've been researching since December of 98. And we uh, just recently discovered a second uh, heavily active site that we call Aldous Spring Hollow, which is some considerable miles from Marley Woods, and uh, where a lot of the same activity is taking place. And then, of course, our primary project way down the road is Project Moonshaft, which is something Alan and I became involved in in 1970, involving a uh, an extremely old artifact two miles back in a cave in the Tatra Mountains of Slovakia. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on, and it's fun. I'm enjoying it. And this team, this team is, uh, these are five great people. Well, I should say four and and then me, and we have the only uh, experienced and expert dive team because occasionally uh, these things are seen going into coming out of ponds, lakes, whatever. So uh, we're we're really set up to do the proper research uh, over the spectrum. Ted, let, let's go back for a moment to these indentations from these mm-hmm. craft that have landing gear. A couple of things. In looking at, for example, you, you say that the disc crafts have a triangular configuration of circular pads, I guess, at the end of struts that come down. Right, yes. Um, so, a couple of things. Question A, in looking at the different cases where you've found these uh, these indentations, are they exactly the same in terms of their distance from one another and their sizes? That's question A. Question B do you find anything that indicates that these actual landing pads are used as sensors of some sort? In other words, you know, do, are they used to actually gather up any soil from the location? Because we often hear reports about creatures getting out of the craft, gathering a sample, and then going back into the craft. And that seems, I think, in many ways, very low-tech. You think if you had <laughs> yeah. a, it, it reminds me of the movie E.T., 
Well, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, so so uh, question A, are there similarities or are they exactly the same, which would indicate the same craft or same source or craft? And B, does it look like these stratons in any way are used to gather samples? A couple of very good questions. And the uh, in the cases of a specific type of object, let's say the squirrel type object, you right. will find witnesses describing uh, the object in basically the same way as, as Zamora did, and you will find, well, in, in the Socorro case, less than 48 hours after that happened at uh, La Madera, New Mexico, about 140, 50 miles north, a gentleman observed uh, an object uh, he described as like the squirrel object, and this was before it hit the papers. So this guy is pretty small town, not very likely he'd heard a thing about Socorro yet. And the object took off with a, uh, a roar and a throw of flames like Socorro. And uh, there was burning at the center of the landing site. There were, again, four landing pad indentations, the same configuration and the same size mm-hmm. uh, as Socorro. And there are, uh, I know of at least a half dozen other cases of the same type object and the very same type uh, indentations. Now, the distribution of those indentations varies the distance between them and their uh, their pattern because of the terrain they land in. And uh, Bill Powers, who was at Northwestern University, a good friend of Allen's, back uh, when I first joined those folks, did a study of the uh, Socorro imprints and their distributions, and he determined that uh, they had the configuration in the ground that they had to level the object horizontally. And uh, then in following cases, we were alert to that, and in fact, they, uh, they had the same characteristics. So there is some sort of, uh, of control to keep a certain attitude for the object. Now, if that's for a scent or who knows what, but that seems to be the, the most dramatic difference in a same type object in the configuration of the resulting uh, imprints. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there are various types of objects which look like the classic saucer, except they're smaller or they're even larger. And the uh, indent, uh, indentations then will cover a larger area, the distance between them greater, the uh, compression in the soil considerably greater, indicating a much heavier weight. So there are differences, but there are really great similarities. I wanted to ask you here with regard to the indentations. Do you notice any change in the background radiation readings as opposed to just the normal soil or whatever? Of the uh, of the 3,389 cases, less than one half of one percent uh, represent any uh, detection of radiation. It seems not really to be there, and uh, so and generally, you know, your uh, investigators in the area. Uh, or myself, generally we are able to get to a landing site fairly quickly and uh, there would be residue of radiation there and I've never been able to find any. And uh, as I say, it's it's a very, very 
small percentage of reports involving radiation, and the way the uh, radiation counts were obtained would be in question. So uh, I wouldn't be at all concerned about radiation, and the uh, possibility of finding it would be, I think, quite small, or at least it has been in the past. What about reports I've heard that some people have actually gotten burns and other sorts of injuries coming into close proximity to a UFO? Exactly. Uh, One of the very interesting and I think high-quality cases was the Falcon Lake event uh, in Canada uh, in which the uh, witness saw a landed classic disc, and uh, he was curious enough, not wise, but curious enough to go up and uh, try to look in a sort of uh, grill-like opening at one section of the object, and he was hit by a blast of uh, extremely hot something, air, and uh, was knocked to the ground. His clothes were uh, were burned, and he actually had a pattern of circular burns on his chest and abdomen for quite a long while. He was in the hospital, and, of course, that was well documented. And so that that does happen, but rarely, because people generally don't get that close. Now... When you talk about scorching of mm-hmm. the correct head, um, what are the differences that you've noticed between the scorching that you find in landing cases and what would normally, for example, be achieved if you took a flamethrower and hit the ground with it? Mm-hmm. Different kind of heating. Uh, in many cases, now when I say scorched, it's more of a, um, oh, for example, if you put a living plant in a microwave oven, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't catch fire unless you expose it too long right. uh but the effects are the effects of heating this is what we found over and over again in the uh, uh scorched and dehydrated sites that it is not a flame this is this is not an effect generated by a fire okay. or a source of fire and uh, there have been a number of uh, extremely interesting cases. Uh, and the microwave idea, uh, we, Texas A&M back in the early 70s was doing a lot of uh, microwave uh, experiments. And uh, so Alan contacted them. We got a lot of information from them, a lot of input comparing what they were seeing to some of the landing sites. And they were saying basically, well, they said to us that, uh, for example, there was a case we investigated in Iowa in which the daughter of a very uh, uh, prominent farmer saw an object coming towards the uh, farmhouse and uh, a classic disc flew over the, the farmhouse, banked over a soybean field, and appeared to land. Well, it didn't actually land, and what they, they found the next morning was a, uh, a 40-foot circular area where the soybean plants were welded and dead as a rock. Again, there was no burning or anything like that, and no compression of the soil or the plants from a weight. So the object uh, had taken position over them for a period of time, downloading or generating downward a, a very high frequency effect, which sapped the plants of moisture. And, of course, then you get the welding, and it looks all for the world like, you know, the heating effect. And uh, so it was, that was a pretty incredible uh, effect. And we sent that one to our contacts uh, at A&M, and 
they, uh, in looking at it and so on, they said, well, you could do exactly this thing if you had a really large crane and a 40-foot microwave with a uh, circular door, hung it over the soybeans, and could get the thing to work with the door open. So I think we're, I think we're looking at something like that. And we've had, had quite a number of reports. For example, the object lands out in front of a farmhouse. The wife is, the dog's going crazy. The wife looks out the window. The thing's sitting out there. And she hears her husband coming down the stairs. And uh, he's near death because he's got a pacemaker. And we've had the same type of effects with uh, the dry throat, which I kind of have today, and uh, uh, soreness in the nasal passages, color changes in the vision, extreme headaches. So I think we're kind of on the right path with that. I don't know of anyone that's figured out exactly what it is they're doing, but it's that sort of effect. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're a little arrogant with Jesus and David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Ted Phillips, who has spent a lot of time investigating many, many trace cases where the UFO leaves something in its wake. And that kind of takes us to another area before we explore many of the permutations of trace cases. Crop circles. Any relationship to that? No. None. <laughs> Okay, well, then to the next subject, ladies and gentlemen. No, 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 well, no, let me let because, me follow that just a yeah. bit because I don't want, you know, to have all the crop circle folks angry. I think crop circles are something like all the other stuff that definitely need to be investigated. Where I get a blood pressure increase is when I start seeing some of the old UFO sites called crop circles. Mm -hmm. And some of those were cases that I personally investigated, and they were as far from uh, the classic crop circle as anything could be. And the primary difference in my mind between a crop circle, which in all these cases I've investigated, I have not once ran into anything remotely similar to a crop circle. Mm -hmm. Now, if they want to call a UFO landing site, which is nine feet in diameter, and depressed or swirled a crop circle, then that's a little different thing. But I have never walked into anything that looked like Walt Disney had had a crew there generating some kind of foliage thing. And not only that, in each and every one of 3,389 cases, in each of those, an object was seen at the point of the site by witnesses generating the effect. And so that's a quantum leap to go from a crop circle 
to a landing site. And, uh, again, I think they should be investigated. But let's not start throwing the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot right. and everything else into uh, the UFO area. I mean, it's muddled enough. Well, you're we saying, Bennett, flat- you don't believe that crop circles is necessarily related to UFOs. Absolutely not. All right. So let's stick with uh, with physical landings, Ted. You look at the soil that mm-hmm. you say has got has got some weird stuff that happens to it, and it's my understanding that one of the things that happens is that this soil can no longer absorb water in many cases. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. All right. Yes. So, so the question is this: Is there something in conventional terms that doesn't involve UFOs? that creates this effect, and and I'm asking this because let's try to understand what is actually going on if a legitimate UFO creates this reaction. What do we know would do this to soil? Well, let me give you an example. A case that I investigated two or three hundred years ago was Delphos, Kansas, uh, November of 1971. And very briefly, a 16-year-old boy uh, and his family, they uh, lived on a uh, pretty remote farm, had arrived home just after dark. The boy had a number of uh, uh, lambs that he was taking care of for some project. And uh, so he went out with a flashlight in the dark, 250 feet from the farmhouse, to take care of the sheep. He's feeding the sheep. And uh, he and his dog, and, well, the dog wasn't feeding him, but he was with him. And suddenly he hears a, uh, a sort of rumbling, banging noise. And behind uh, a hog shed, about uh, 45 feet from him, the area lights up, very brilliant light. And he sees there, five feet above the ground, an object that's about five, six feet thick, about eight or ten feet in diameter, which is made up of multicolored, extremely brilliant lights. And um, so he stands there watching this thing and had a, a very unobstructed view of it just through a few scattered trees. And as he's watching it, he, he notices underneath it there is a shimmering or luminous fountain of some sort of spray coming out of the base of the object in a circular pattern, in other words, like it's coming out of a a circular base, and it's uh, falling towards the ground. Well, one of the odd effects is that it stops, it falls for four feet and stops one foot above the actual ground surface. And the ground surface through there, it was a, uh, what they call a shelter belt, which has no vegetation in it, just uh, a line of trees that will keep uh, farm animals from going out into an open field. And it's fenced from the other side where he was at. So falling on this uh, this clear ground, just muddy ground, the effect stops, and there's nothing in that foot from the bottom of the spray to the uh, the ground surface. And eventually, on the ground surface beneath the spray, he sees a sort of haze or fog coming up from the ground in a circle, and uh, which corresponds to the uh, dimensions of the spraying effect and the base of the object. The spray is quite, quite brilliant as it falls. And uh, he wants to get out of there, but he finds that he can't move. That could be fear, 16 years old. 
Sure. The dog also doesn't move. The sheep don't move. The dog doesn't bark. And so they're all just kind of standing there. And this goes on for a really undetermined period of time because the boy, and I questioned him over and over and over, thought that it was only like three, four minutes. And yet, when he finally got into the house, his parents had watched uh, one and a half TV shows. It had been 45 minutes. But at any rate, as he's standing there watching this thing, can't move, all of a sudden the object brightens, the spray brightens, and uh, the sound, he said, was like an old washing machine uh, out of sync. And uh, it starts moving horizontally above the ground to the east, and it makes a uh, south turn, gains altitude, passes over a five-foot-high hog shed, and uh, as it passes over the shed, it becomes extremely bright, and he goes totally blind, can't see a thing. And the sound changes to a high-pitched uh, whistling sound, which is very common in these things. And I asked him several times, could you see flashes of light, like if somebody popped a bright flash in your face? In your vision, he said, no, it was absolutely black, nothing. But he could hear. I mean, he could hear it. And as the sound uh, slowly receded, which would have been over the farmhouse, he started regaining his vision and was able to move. And he saw it in the southern sky, still as a large circular thing. He ran to the house, told his parents. They ran outside. They saw it going uh, uh, away slowly to the south. And he stand there just while they're watching it, describing what had just happened. And so uh, he, his mother and father, go around the hog sheds and out into this very, very dark shelter belt. And there they are totally amazed to see an eight-foot luminous ring, which is shining bright enough. Uh, I asked his, well, I don't want to get ahead of this. So anyway, they're standing there looking at this. And, they're, you know, these are farm folks, and they're totally amazed. And so the mother and father get down on their hands and knees, and uh, they touch the soil, think it's thinking it's going to be warm. And it was actually cool, and they could feel a tiny craters, pits, and, and the surface was very uh, hard. And uh, immediately their hands, both of them, became numb. Mrs. Johnson tried to wipe this numbing effect or the, the little grains of soil off of her hand onto her uh, slack legs, her uh, trouser legs, and that portion under the trousers became numb and was, uh, I would throw in, was still numb 30 years later. And uh, it was an area about two and a half by three inches in size. And the effects on their hands, Mr. Johnson, you know, he was a farmer, his hands were rough, callous. It went away in two or three days for him, and it lasted over two weeks with Mrs. Johnson. And she uh, worked at a nursing home as a nurse and couldn't take pulses because she couldn't feel the pulse. And um, so at any rate, uh, after this has happened, they're, they're backing away from this thing. And the son asked him, he said, Mom, do we have any film in the uh, camera? And so she thinks, okay, and they all run to the house. They drag the old cheap Polaroid out of the closet, and it's in the box, and this is important, separate from the flash. She doesn't take the time to grab the flash, just the camera, and uh, which has one color image left in it. They run back out to this thing, and she uh, aims the camera at it and shoots the only photo I've ever seen 
of a luminous landing site or near landing taken within five, ten minutes of uh, the UFO being there. And uh, I asked her pointedly, could you see, was the glow from the ring bright enough that you could see see it well through the camera to, to center it? And she said, Ted, you could have read a newspaper by this glow. Now, that's a lot of light. And this thing continued to uh, uh, luminesce for four nights following the event. It was seen by quite a number of relatives to the, to the Johnsons. And a uh, news reporter that came out the next more or next night, and um, so it's well documented that in fact it did glow from the photograph, and no flash was used, and the picture is absolutely incredible. And uh, so the next morning, uh, they had reported it to their friend at the local newspaper, and he called the sheriff. The next morning, the sheriff and the highway patrol came out, and uh, they see this thing as a pure white eight-foot ring in this dark, muddy soil. And uh, none of them really touched it. The sheriff took a quart jar of samples of this uh, uh, white material that was on top and down somewhat into the soil and uh, sealed the jar, put it in a light-tight safe there at the uh, sheriff's office. And the highway patrolman, I've talked to, of course, all these people. The highway patrolman, you know, he said, I've never seen anything like this. And they found uh, along the flight path of this thing, behind the hogshed, a seven-inch diameter tree which had been knocked down. And judging by the attitude of the tree on the ground, it was knocked down by this thing when it was coming in. A very restricted area. Believe me, you'd have to have a whale of a pilot to fly this thing in between these trees. Uh, it was all possible for a 10-foot wide object. I measured all of the trees and their locations, and it was possible. And where it uh, had stopped where the ring was generated, there was eight feet away a uh, tree with a tree limb broken at a point eight and a half feet above the ground, not just broken, but pulled down. This was a hefty living limb at the time, uh, which had extended out over the ring. And uh, although it didn't look like it was actually impacted and broken down, it looked as though something had hold of it, twisted it, and pulled it down. So... But uh, at any rate, when I got there, I went out with uh, the sheriff, the highway patrol, with the witnesses. And uh, the sheriff and I looked for anything like uh, impact marks, uh, if they'd have taken a tractor and a chain, pulled the tree down, anything like that. Not because I thought it was a hoax, but you have to do it. And uh, the uh, highway patrol and the sheriff told me the interesting thing that morning, and they took a magnificent photo of this pure white ring. It, uh, it is spectacular. And they told me that the dog that had accompanied Ron refused to go into the shelter belt, wouldn't go anywhere near the uh, ring. And they uh, watched the dog run into a wooden fence in the side of a barn. And about three weeks later, they had to take it to uh, the local vet and uh, because its eye was really swelling. And the vet, it lost the eye, but the vet pulled from the dog's nose, from his head, a long, I've seen it several times, it, the only way I can describe it is like a long, rigid centipede. 
and uh, this thing was about nine inches long and uh, covered with uh, protuberances, legs, I don't know. It sounds almost and, like the science fiction movies you see about alien possession. Before we persist, and I know David has a follow-up question, I can read his mind. <laughs> Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Ted Phillips, someone who has been involved for a number of years in checking UFO evidence on the scene, trace evidence, and I have a few questions myself after David covers this case, and he's involved with an organization called the Center for Physical Research. You go to ufophysical.com or check our link, which we'll have posted at theparacast.com. David. Ted. Where are these photos? We must see these. And they they are well on the wait. I'm saying they're on the website. No, they're not because I've looked through your website. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. That's my uh, next big web project. I'm going to uh, put the entire file on Delphos on the website, including uh, all the photos, all the sketches, statements, documents, analysis, everything. It's going to take a little while to get it uh, formatted and posted because that one case fills a four-drawer file cabinet, uh, and then I couldn't imagine how many uh, thick folders. So it's a, a voluminous material, so it's going to take a while. But I would be happy to send you those photos if you'd like to see them. Very much if so. You, yeah, if you'd like to post them or, or just look at them. But they what are... Post them on our forums because this this sounds really fascinating. Because I was going to ask you, given that this thing was around for more than a day, I was mm-hmm. assuming that people brought cameras and shot it, and it wasn't just oh, that yes. one photo took. Oh yeah, All right. yeah, yeah. There were lots of uh, newspaper. Uh, the Salina Journal went out. They took an entire roll of film. Uh, and I managed to get uh, uh, copies of all those photos uh, later. And there were photos taken down through the life of this ring. And that's one of the fascinating things. I have a photo which was taken three years and six months after the event. The central area of the ring was normal. It was black, muddy stuff. And uh, in this three-year, six-month photo, uh, the central area is full of all kinds of weeds and things, and the area all around the ring is full of all kinds of weeds and things. And the ring itself, after that period of time, bone dry and uh, nothing whatsoever growing in it. Well, it can't grow in it because 
back to your question before I went into this long rant, the soil cannot absorb moisture because it has a coating. And this was determined by Oak Ridge Laboratories. That was one of the instances in which we could get down to some really good uh, analysis. And uh, they sent us several uh, very, very high-powered uh, microscopic images from an electron microscope, which shows the coating material on a tiny piece of the soil. And then inside the coating material, they found, uh, and fortunately sent us a photo, of icicle-like structures. Uh, that's what they call them, that no one at Oak Ridge had ever seen nor could identify and uh, as things were getting really, really good in the analysis, and I'll be posting the letter, uh, Alan and I received a letter from the project at Oak Ridge, and the gentleman that ran the Orion project there was a good friend of Alan's, and he says, a very interesting case, a very large difference between the controlled soil and the affected soil. However, due to a change in management, we can no longer work with this material. Of course, huh? they didn't send it back. What? Yes. So now, wait a minute. Um, Duh. Can I Duh. just say that, ladies and gentlemen? One, two, three. Duh. Duh. Yes. Yeah. And suddenly, Alan and I realized, which we should have, I guess, a lot earlier, that with heavy government contracts, why should they tell us anything of real significance? Now, did before they they cut you off? Um, did did they indicate what? Okay, so you talked about like icicle-like structures. Are we talking about their words? That's that's what they call them. Are they? Uh, they, they they went they went into no detail whatsoever about the makeup of these icicles, oh. and uh, you know we were assuming that that was all forthcoming, and uh, unfortunately, I don't know. Maybe they didn't do a thing more with it, but it seemed a little odd. And so uh, couldn't even get out of them whether this was deposited onto the soil. Well, or of course, whether... yes. Oh, yes, yes, it was. Well, that was... was it deposited or was it a, a chemical reaction of the soil? I guess that's what I'm guess, getting at here. It well, was, it it's was emitted and deposited. There was uh, extensive analysis done by uh, Earl Farouk at Nottingham University in England. And I sent these samples everywhere because this was such a significant case we, for once, needed to really be able to get down to brass tacks and had a lot to work with. Now, I have to tell you this. The Oak Ridge people did admit when they opened the uh, soil canisters, not the normal soil, but the uh, affected soil, uh, after I had sent them down, they all went into uh, very drastic coughing spasms. Mm. And from that point on, they uh, wore protective uh face gear and uh, so that's one thing the numbing effect is another thing and I saw uh, a very good friend Jim Harder who was involved in UFO research for many years he was a uh, uh, geochemist at Berkeley and uh, he and I went together to the site in August of the year following the event and we were taking more samples I never ever experienced any of the numbing effects personally but Jim was taking, uh, of course, in August in Kansas, it was hotter than hell. As we were taking samples, suddenly his fingers became numb, and uh, it really frightened him. I was a bit surprised. And so he headed for the farmhouse to wash his hands, and as he uh, 
went at a pretty good pace toward the farmhouse. He was sweating profusely. The sweat was uh, falling into his eyes. And without thinking, he rubbed his uh, forehead and eyes. Mm. And all that became numb. And uh, I, I can see him right now in a uh, wash basin with a lot of soap and water, which took it away. But nevertheless, he experienced it. And uh, a couple of the laboratories uh, have reported, Phyllis Bunninger, Frontier Analysis, and uh, Farouk at Nottingham, that uh, they did see uh, luminosity in some of the material, even two to, uh, or no, a year to about ten years after the fact. And uh, so that, that was actually confirmed in, in a laboratory, two labs, hmm. and uh, perhaps more that didn't bother to let us know. But uh, this stuff went to a lot of labs, and uh, uh, we pursued it and generally uh, were denied any kind of real access to the data. I have a question so, here that kind of occurs to me, which is these physical experiences were mm -hmm. examined by doctors, the people who encountered this? No. No, they were not. And uh, in a number of conversations with Philip Class, one of my really good old buddies, who, of course, was a bit of a skeptic, he would always say, well, why didn't they go to the doctor? Wouldn't that be the first thing they do? These are farm folks out in the middle of Kansas. And number one, they don't have the money to go to a doctor for just this or that, no matter how scary it was. And uh, so, you know, it didn't surprise me at all because I uh, actually grew up around farm folks and they didn't go to the doctor unless you know it was the end and uh, so that was not a surprise and now Mrs. Johnson did go to a doctor years later about this uh, not specifically there she was there for a physical and she asked uh, two or three different doctors their local doctors about this numbing thing on on her leg and they could stick uh, she said needles into it she couldn't feel it at all and uh, they had no explanation for it. And she had lived for years, so they didn't suggest anything. So uh, I did try to get MUFON to uh, get one of their medical consultants to, uh, to go there and examine her. This was, I don't know, five, six years ago as a kind of last-ditch effort, and that went nowhere. So All right. Um, so here's the thing. Head. Let's not talk about things that could create that could create a reaction soil that would have it glowing in terms of conventional approaches, but in terms of the dehydration of soil, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what existing processes do we know about that would create potentially a similar situation if soil were subjected to it? Mm -hmm. Well, Farouk developed uh, a theory that. This uh, the glowing effect, number one, uh, of the object, and then eventually the ring itself, mm -hmm. was generated by the object having to download something. Uh, and his idea was, which makes a lot of sense to me, being familiar with the case, the object had to land, and it had to land fast, because something there was a buildup of something internally that had to be... Uh, released and for some reason they had to be near the ground to do it and uh, so this thing made its way back into this area which was the least visible spot for miles back in this shelter belt and they went to a lot of trouble to make their way back in there 
And um, so the theory is that they were having some sort of problem. They had to download this stuff. And uh, as it hit the air, the atmosphere, it reacted to oxygen uh, with a, uh, a luminescence and a sort of chemiluminescence. And uh, the, his theory is that the outer portion of the object is a transparent sort of skin, we'll say, which was also glowing by this chemiluminescence effect. Mm-hmm. And this stuff, whatever it was, as it was deposited eventually on the surface, then reacted to the soil surface and oxygen and went from a, an aqueous solution to a, a very hardened crust. And uh, there are ways to do that, but uh, it would be very difficult to do it on that scale and something that would seal the soil down to a depth of 14 inches into the ground. Uh, soil is a great insulator, and that is a lot of depth. Mm-hmm. I was amazed as I went down through this stuff, and at 14 inches and only to the edge of edges of the ring. If you got outside, I mean, I even did a core sample right down the edge where you were getting half control sample from the middle or the outside and half of the ring. And there is a definitive line down matching the uh, the pattern of the ring on the surface. Now, something else that I found of great interest is, and when you see the photograph taken by the sheriff and the three-year, uh, six-month photo, it's very clear. To the west edge of the ring, the, this was a, a complete ring, a donut, except mm-hmm. on the western edge, the width of the ring, which was a little narrower than the eastern side, uh, there was a slot where there was none of this deposit, and or very little. I couldn't detect any, and uh, so I thought, well, this is really strange. Why would this this separation be there? Uh, and this was about uh, a foot in in width. And uh, so after I got with the weather bureau, the wind was coming out of the west at about uh, ten miles an hour at the time this was happening. So as this aqueous solution is dropping to the ground, it's being dispersed by this westerly wind away from that section of the ring, leaving the gap, and the ring is considerably wider downwind, as though this, whatever this stuff was, as it was coming to the ground, it was very light, and it was dispersed in that direction. And also, uh, there was some luminosity along the flight path the object took out of there, and even on the roof of the hog shed that it went over. So it was still uh, ejecting some of this stuff during the uh, ascent. And in uh, addition to that, I found later from the uh, daughter of the property owner uh, who lived across the road, or the granddaughter, said that her grandfather had told her, he had never talked about it, but he told her that on the night this happened, he was out on the tractor running across heading for the uh, barn, and he saw the object come out of the farm, over the farmhouse, and it came down in his field, and it seemed to be having a lot of problems. It was kind of dragging and sort of bouncing across the field for uh, two or 300 feet. No sound, nothing. 
finally managed to get back in the air and flew on south, where it was seen by an auxiliary police officer as it went over Minneapolis, Kansas. And it had also been seen before it landed in the uh, Johnson Farm by a high school uh, teacher north of there and heading in that direction and by a neighbor who lived uh, about a quarter of a mile west of the farm as it went in. I'll farm. tell you what, so. let's make this a cliffhanger, okay? <laughs> a cliffhanger. We're going to break for our first hour. We've been talking to Ted Phillips, someone who has lots of hands-on experiences looking for traces from UFO landings. He is associated with the Center for Physical Research. We'll be back with our number two of the Paracast in a moment. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're back with Ted Phillips, director of the Center for Physical Research, looking for UFO trace data on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. I saw something on your site, and I'm going to ask you about it, okay? It says the SIU is headed to Aztec, New Mexico, to investigate (laughs) the alleged March 25, 1948 UFO crash site. Uh, That has been a huge can of worms. Lots mm-hmm. of people say it's a fake. Other people say it's real. We've heard both sides. Of course, mm-hmm. originally it was written about in the Frank Scully book Behind the Flying Saucers back in 1915. People thought, well, it's a fake. He got the information from con men. So in light of all this, why are you guys going there to investigate this? Because I'm speaking at the Aztec Conference. <laughs> And the team decided they would go down. It would be an excellent opportunity to look into uh, some things down there. And uh, so uh, we're going out. Stanton Friedman is going to accompany us and uh, just go out and prowl around. I have to tell you, I am not a huge fan of uh, the crash UFO cases. I, I've never ran into that. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But people are always asking, well, what do you think about Roswell? And I always have to say, not much, really. I don't, I've never been impressed with that case. There is virtually nothing you can do with it. Anything that old is, is terrifically interesting, but you can't talk to witnesses. The effects are gone. And, uh, you know, I have cases going back to the year 1490 involving traces and objects, but you can't do much with them, so I don't talk about it much. And uh, so if we just saw it as a crass opportunity to get more video for our second SIU DVD, the first of which is coming out in about two weeks. And why are we doing a DVD to sell? to get funding to buy more imaging equipment and try to get to uh, back to Slovakia. So I, I have never written uh, a standard-type book. I did physical traces associated with uh, UFO sightings in 1975. I did the Delphos uh, event in, uh, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. But I've never, ever been a self-promoter, and I've never been one to sell things because I think it cheapens what you're doing. But we've reached a point where we need to get back to Slovakia because if we don't do it pretty quickly, they'll be taking me over in a casket, and I won't be able to have a lot of input. We can bring Ouija boards with us, of course. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But anyway, so that's 
that's the uh, that's the reason we're doing that, and uh, and it'll be interesting. You know, I, Scott Ramsey's going with us, and uh, you know, I'm always willing to listen and look. Well, we had Scott and, on the show, and he had a very fascinating story to tell about his investigations of Aztecs. So, oh, yeah, I'll bet. yeah, yeah, I can't wait to meet him and uh, and listen. You know. So, and of course, Ted. Stanton is just a great guy and a lot of fun, and uh, so it's going to be a, a huge fun going with him out to uh, the crash site. So, Ted, in the years you've been doing research, um, have you ever gone to investigate cases in South America? Something I, I have a particular interest in, and if so, what would be the most compelling case you looked into down there? You know, I have been uh, in Central America. And uh, I have not actually been in South America, but I will tell you this. You are truly correct, because I have files and files of uh, especially Brazilian cases Uh that I find incredibly interesting. And if we sell enough DVDs, we're going to be going down there. Because Bob Pratt, before he passed away, sent me... uh, all of his files on the uh, uh, levitation cases in uh, Brazil. And uh, I've encountered levitation events here in the U.S., and I have a special affinity to those. And uh, the Brazilian stuff is like night after night of people being grabbed off the ground. One of the most dramatic things, and believe me very briefly, is the, uh, the lady, her daughter, and her dog which are all levitated uh, before her other daughter and her husband, quite a distance above the ground from this thing. And the effects that these people feel while this is happening, or this is happening. And uh, I have quite a file on vehicles uh, that have been levitated off of roads uh, because they suffer physical injury. And uh, so... Uh, you're absolutely right. Brazil would be a wonderful place to spend a lot of time in. I'll tell you another place that receives almost no attention in the mainstream UFO research field is the Canaima region of Venezuela. Um, ah. This is right around where the Angel Falls are. Some of the most insane reports have come out of that area to the extent where there's a fellow who um, actually has put together, a Venezuelan guy, a researcher down there, who's put together an entire map showing all of these different really interesting cases. And one of the best UFO photos I've ever seen is documented in Bruce McAbee's book, um, UFOs Are Real, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a shot from the Canaima region. The problem is it's a very remote region of the country. Uh, there are a lot of places in the Canaima region where people have literally never set foot. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to get to. And then, Ted, there's also uh, what appears to be some kind of a flap going on in Argentina in, mm-hmm. like, the last year. So there's a lot of really interesting activity going on. Now, I have to tell you, I personally never really heard much about levitation cases. How, mm-hmm. how do those play out? I mean, are people, we're talking about cases where people are just lifted off the ground but not taken into a craft? Right, yeah. Yeah, the, hmm. I don't know. I guess we might go out on a limb and call them uh, an attempted abduction but uh, I I have been totally amazed by these things and I've done as much research into them as I can from a distance and uh, the thing that intrigues me uh, and really draws me into the credibility of these events as incredible as they may be I mean all this stuff's incredible so you know you can't start drawing lines really uh, until you've looked at it very closely but these people 
almost to a person, and uh, and I have, oh, I guess, 60, 70 really extraordinary cases, all from Brazil, where the individuals are illiterate. They can't read. They don't read the National Enquirer. They don't watch Larry King. They don't see all this stuff filtering out through the media and become influenced by it. They don't think, well, I'm going to go out and walk the dog night and see a UFO and it's going to grab me. They're going out in these really little scrubby villages in the middle of nowhere. They don't even talk to the, the next village. What I'm saying is these are people out of communication with the world. And yet... To a case, they describe the same sequences of events and the same effects over and over and over. And it simply is they go out the door uh, to go home from uh, so-and-so's home, which is 300 feet from them, and uh, they see a small light, intense light, generally up on top of a hill, near the hilltop, and instantly it's right over them. It's not large, not large at all, maybe basketball, beach ball size, and they're being pulled off the ground. And uh, a lot of the cases independently refer to a glowing fishing net that seems it doesn't touch them, but it comes out of the base of this thing and uh, goes all around them. And from below, they feel intense cold. From the top, they feel like hot candle wax dropping on them, and they suffer a lot of physical injuries. Hmm. And uh, so, and eventually, they're dropped back to the ground, or in some of the cases, they grab hold of a large tree, and they suffer physical injuries because it's pulling them up the trunk of the tree and finally gives up. Like an alien <laughs> tractor beam. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sure. But. The fascinating thing in those is, uh, again, that they are so similar, and there is no way on earth that these witnesses could have communicated this information. Well, that's a very good point that may be worth emphasizing. The fact is we have these cases happening in wildly different places, different times, where people are not necessarily in tune with all the latest news and 24-hour cable TV, yet the experiences are very much identical. Yes, absolutely. And uh, in my mind, that I mean, that's as much credibility as you can expect, you know, as far as the witnesses, because how are they all making up the same stories? Uh, it just it doesn't compute. You, it just does not work that way. And uh, if they're, if it's a lie, if it's all a big, well, me too, I'm going to say this. And so Bob Pratt, God love him, did such great work accumulating all this information, how he could have afforded to stay in Brazil that long and cover all that ground, I, I have never understood. But I would love to be in his in the shoes that he was in. I mean, it's... Uh, a wealth of information that uh, needs to really be looked at, and I'll guarantee you this stuff is still going on today. Hmm. You could go down there and stay two weeks, and you would come up with more hmm. good cases uh, than maybe you'd want. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And looking over your site, there's a page called UFO Trace Case Facts, and mm -hmm. there's some really interesting things on there. You, you've got a, a little, little kind of a little table. It's two column table showing. Uh, the distribution of trace evidence cases pre-1900 to 2006, mm -hmm. there's a real serious spike, 70 to 79. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, Huge spike. Now, uh, just a couple of questions about this. Does this reflect uh, simply, um, can you map these numbers to media awareness of the phenomenon? And and why do you think things spiked in 70, 79? Then there's a precipitous drop-off. Well, you're exactly right. And that drop-off continues. Uh, Mm -hmm. You'll, you'll, I'm sure, have guests that'll tell you, oh, we've never had as many sightings. Well, if you count lights in the night sky, that's probably true, because there's a lot more flying in the night sky now. But uh, what you see is, of course, the great French wave of 1954, Mm -hmm. a huge spike in that time period of, again, I can only speak to landing trace events, but I mean, these things were landing every day almost uh, through uh, late September, October into November, then they moved into Italy and so on. And the people were seeing basically, again, the same things. They were seeing a lot of little guys, objects on the ground, and a lot of daylight stuff and so on. Then... You have to come up to, well, there was a spike in electromagnetic effects cases in 1957. There was, uh, I'm thinking November of 57 in the southwestern states, highway patrolmen, a hundred cars lined up that wouldn't run, an object hanging out there. Good stuff. But it was only that type of case, and it was only in that month. Then, you fast forward to uh, 1965, pretty good number. 1967, good number. 1969, big number. And then uh, you get into the 70s, and it was almost constant big numbers. And that's where we were totally covered up. We No way we could keep up with it. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that. Radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
here on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Ted Phillips, he's associated with an organization called the Center for Physical Research. And let me ask you briefly before we go back into the frequency or lack of frequency of these cases, how are you guys financed? Donations, memberships, what? Uh, just donations. Okay. Now, we uh, one thing that we all agreed on when we formed the uh, the team, and I agreed with myself when I formed uh, CPTR. No politics, and uh, consequently, we don't want to get into numbers, and we want to keep the team small, or as you like to say, lean and mean, but. Because we all get along extremely well, we all are uh, uh, have our own minds, and we speak those minds, and uh, we're just having a great time. But if you start increasing the numbers, uh, number one, you don't want to go into a UFO case or a site with uh, 50 people. And uh, and then if you get into the membership thing, then the political stuff gets in, and you know it's it's just not worth it. And all that bookkeeping uh, to keep up with members and subscribers to your newsletters. Yeah. yeah. Now at the UFO uh, physical site, ufophysical.com, there is a PayPal donate button. Yeah. And we have yeah. that ourselves, so we appreciate what donations are. And so if you go to the site, ufophysical.com, you want to help them out, click PayPal Donate and give them 10 bucks, give them 20 That's cool. Or 1000 you know, even better. Yeah. Well, guess what? We just got one of those. Excellent. <laughs> just got, yeah. And uh, what we get is, hey, we really like the idea that you're putting the information on the site, not putting it in a file cabinet not keeping it to yourself, and, uh, uh, you know, we wish we could give away these DVDs. Obviously, it costs money to get to these places. It costs money to get better imaging equipment. If you want to see better video, better imaging, you got to have better equipment. And uh, so that's that's why, again, we're selling the DVD and so asking Ted, for donations. I, I, here's a question, I mean, and answer it if you will. How do you survive? How do you stay alive? I mean, you've been doing this a long time. You got, you got a day job? I mean, I'm just curious. Well, actually, I'm in the, uh, well, sort of pleasant situation of being retired. Pleasant because I have all the time in the world to devote to the research and uh, no money coming in. Thank God my wife has a good job and is in good health. And uh, got it. so... That's that's about where that's at, and uh, it's an understanding woman, in other words. <laughs> yeah, oh, very. Yes, she is. Yeah, I uh, I converted her a long time. Well, I didn't convert her; she was converted by the information. And uh, but um, we well, it, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, we what I was going to say is we have never ever in the last forty years plus have had. Funding. J. Allen Hynek, who was a uh, uh, quite a uh, conspicuous, respected scientist, very solid individual, and he had a lot of contacts, and he did everything he could to get funding for the physical trace research. And in all our years together, which was almost 20 up until he passed away, he managed to get one $4,000 grant, and that's what we operated on for all those years, uh, other than out of our own pockets. And, uh, of course, we would do lectures and pick up some money that way, but, boy, you take care of that in one case. 
And uh, so, you know, uh, I put, and he did too, a lot more into it than I'll ever see from it. So the idea that anyone gets into it to make money is ludicrous. That's kind of what I suspected. Yeah, yeah. Ain't going to happen. (laughs) It's kind of a pity because obviously you'd think that given the incredible interest in the topic, Mm -hmm. um, you would think that, you know, someone like the Sci-Fi Channel Mm-hmm. would do something like this. Or, you know, when we spoke to Jacques Vallée, uh, Vallée mm-hmm. talked about the need for well-funded, small research teams that would compete with each other. Um, and you think over, you know, 40 years, 50 years of this, mm-hmm. gee, uh, Steven Spielberg made enough dough off of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. You know, why hasn't he sprung a check for this stuff? I, you just start to wonder why there are people like that that, you know, have made a good amount of money off this topic, either directly or indirectly. And, uh, you exactly. know, you're talking about you, you, you're able to survive w- with a $4,000 grant for years to do research. It's like, mm-hmm. my God, $4,000 is probably not what Spielberg spends on socks a year. Oh, no, no. Uh, you know, my wife brings that up frequently. She said, you know, if you could just sit down with Spielberg for 10 minutes, yeah. you might convince him that this is something that needs to be really seriously looked at. Fortunately, in uh, late 1998, I was contacted by a uh, a wonderful guy, wonderfully rich, and uh, he said, I understand, he sent, sent me this kind of poorly written email that I almost just deleted, saying, I understand you have a different way of researching UFOs. Could we talk? And uh, fortunately, he uh, he did give me his name and his position, and I checked it out, and that was true. And uh, so I emailed him back, and I said, "Sure, let's talk." So he flew me to California, and we talked for I think about. I know, 30... I know, I know where this is going because because I'm psychic. I think I know this would. Be I think you probably. Well, J.F. would be the initials of my, this gentleman? My God, you are a psychic. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I but. talked to him for 30 minutes, and uh, he uh, asked me to write uh, uh, a report for him on the trace cases, and uh, which he was willing to pay for, and I was more than willing to write it. And uh, he said, as, after 30 minutes, we shook hands, and... Uh, he said, now, tell me about J. Allen Hynek, because he, as a student, got to see J. Allen at a lecture and uh, just fell in love with the guy, his personality, you know, and uh, what he was doing. And uh, so as I was leaving to fly back happily home, uh, he said, if you ever have a project that uh, you think is, is good, give me a call. So after a couple of months, I... Uh, I suddenly thought, Slovakia, the artifact. I've been waiting 30 years to do this. And uh, so I called him, explained what it was and so on. And he said, what do you need? And I told him, and uh, the check was here 10 o'clock the next morning. And I was on a plane for Slovakia in about three days. But that doesn't happen often. Right. Now, (laughs) is that the one and only time he helped you or what? Oh no, 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 huh? No, we had a we had a, a very uh, close relationship uh, for funding, and uh, until the uh, the internet took that little plunge, I was getting really all the funding I needed. And uh, of course, there's always you know after the fact more and more you 
need to do. But at any rate, uh, and he is a wonderful guy. I felt so sorry for him because if the man went out in public, since yeah. the UFO community had learned that he did fund occasionally, he had people hanging on his ankles. He had to drag them across the floor begging for funds, you know, and I, I can't imagine what that was like. Uh, and then, of course, the media went off on him like, you know, I've got a photo of him on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine peering over a fence from the eyes up. You know, it's just a degrading, stupid yeah. attitude. But. Right. Well, as is wont to happen with people who uh, who have high profiles, of course, is uh, Joe Fromage. Uh, was the founder of U.S. Web. If and that who, should have been him, yeah, that's right. If if that were him, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean it's well. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm guessing that because he's really the only guy who's really besides him and, and, and Bigelow. And the Bigelow thing is really kind of odd. And I'm not I'm not so sure about that whole the whole Nids thing. Of course, then there's the weird involvement of Jacques Vallée in that. That's exactly. I was so amazed. Uh, at uh, Valet uh, yeah. on that particular count. I uh, I was contacted by Bigelow. I was offered a, a very, very nice job and uh, got to the point where I was about to move to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And we luckily had a phone conversation uh, where he said, how would you go about this? And I said, well, I've got a lot of contacts around the planet. And I would set up a, a tight network where they would report events as they came in. And uh, I would then, in return, send them data that we were getting. And he said, oh, no. And I said, okay, bye. You know, because I yeah. don't believe in one-way street. There's that, it's that, well, it's that whole proprietary attitude in the UFO field that, uh, that we see that's very frustrating because you would hope there'd be an, an, an environment of open collaboration and cooperation. Yes. You know, that, that definitely does not happen. Now, let, let's get away from these personalities because you keep bringing up yeah, yeah. the Slovakia situation, yeah. Project yeah. Moonshaft. i got to tell you, this is one of the first things I read on your website, Ted, mm-hmm. and it was utterly fascinating. So tell mm-hmm. us for, for a little while. Let's talk. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? 
Conspiracy Journal, and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. This is the cliffhanger. <laughs> the cliffhanger. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Ted Phillips <laughs> of the Center for Physical Research joins us. Go to ufophysical.com and give your donations. And now David is going to pursue the question. What? And we're channeling, David's channeling his uncle. His I'm Uncle so, Fred. How did you know I had an Uncle Fred? Oh, that's just creepy, dude. I did have an Uncle Fred, and, and Fred is dead. So oh, no. there's that. No, he, it's true. He's gone. All right, so let's get to the really weird, incredibly strange subterranean artifact in, in Slovakia. Now, Ted, I'm looking at this pencil sketch of this mm-hmm. thing, and this is the first thing, of course, that grabs you by the yaya. Um, yeah. you, get on, you get on here, and you see this thing that is so incredibly odd because it is absolutely inappropriate in terms of apparently where it's where it is so tell us set the stage if you would for the story well and again back just for a second to spielberg my wife always says wouldn't that make a great spielberg movie Mm-hmm. And I have to agree, because the uh, Tony's Diary from 1954 is the most fascinating read, and I've gone through that you wouldn't know how many times. In 1970, I received a phone call from uh, a good friend of mine who was a uh, an investigator with APRO, and uh, he said, you've got to meet my neighbor, and he's got something you'd really be interested in. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they were living in Colorado, I living in Missouri, and so he uh, he gave me the brief on it, and uh, two weeks later, my wife and I were talking with uh, Antonin and his wife, Anna Hurrock, in their home in Colorado, and he was showing me this little, very worn diary, which was dated uh, from 1943 late to through 1944, and He's telling me this story as he opens these pages. He basically and quickly, what happened was, in 1939, the uh, the Nazis, as you probably have heard, took over Poland, Czechoslovakia, oh, yeah. and so on. And uh, Tony had huge property in North Czech Republic, and they had uranium mines. He was the first person to sell the stuff to Madame Curie. And they became good friends. He had four engineering degrees. He had a degree in linguistics, uh, business. I mean, a highly educated, smart guy. And uh, when the Nazis took over, they decided that they would arrest and put in concentration camps all the business owners. They took everything he and his wife had down to her wedding rings and uh, slapped him in a concentration camp called Feinwald north of uh, uh, Prague, and he uh, 
stayed there from 39 till 1941, and he was one of the few people ever to escape from that camp. And he uh, fled into Slovakia, or what is now Slovakia, and uh, joined the uh, uh, Slovakian underground army became a captain in the army. These were basically insurgent fighters. They had the big uprising in October or uh, August of 1944 to fight the Germans. And so at any rate, he had a battalion of 184 men, and they were uh, being pushed back after 12 days of fighting to the north slopes of uh, the north section of the Tatra Mountains, which are extremely, believe me, rugged. The Germans opened up with heavy artillery, and they killed all the folks in his battalion, except he and a guy named Yurik and a guy named Martin, and they were uh, pretty seriously wounded. And they left him for dead, and uh, the next day, uh, Tony wakes up with a, uh, a tall Slavic farmer dressing his wounds and building a stretcher for Martin, who was most seriously injured, and packing snow on their wounds and all this. And then he takes them on a uh, four-hour trek through the snow up into the Tatra Mountains to a small, uh, as Tony called it, cranny, a very low, small entrance, and uh, which Tony sketched in his diary. And as they went into the cave, the uh, cave opens into kind of a comfy, large room. To his amazement, Slavic starts going through the holy rites on himself, on Tony and the men, and the cave. And uh, this was so unusual, you know, why would he be blessing this cave? And obviously he had taken them in there to hide them from the Germans. And so as Slavic was leaving, he asked Tony not to go any deeper into his cave, because it was full of uh, uh, bottomless pits and uh, poisonous air and haunted. And uh, so this just grabbed Hurok. They hadn't eaten for four days. As soon as Slavic was out of sight, Hurok loads up and heads back in the cave to try to find bats for food. After traveling about two miles, and he was an avid cave explorer and had all the experience with very deep mines, he reaches a long, level corridor in the cave. Now, I'm not suggesting this is natural or man-made, but and at the end of that was a, uh, a crawlway, and as he was crawling through it, it opens into a, uh, a good-sized room. And at the opposite end of the room, there is a large expanse of a jet-black, mirror-like wall, totally smooth, extending from the floor of the cave up and then on each side. And the rest of the wall at that point is blocked by cave formations that have formed on the wall. Mm. And that's an important factor in how old this thing is. And uh, there was a uh, uh, what he thought was some sort of a stress crack. It's in that sketch that you're talking about, right. running kind of diagonally down to the floor of the cave. And as he looks at this thing, he's totally astonished, never seen anything like this material. So he finds at the base of this crack that if he removes his clothes, he might be able to wriggle through this crack to the back side of this wall. And it took several tries, and his descriptions, as you know, are, are really cool. And finally, he goes through this wall, which, by the way, was seven feet thick. And when he reaches the other side, he's on about a 40-degree decline or incline, and he rolls in the dark all the way down this incline until he hits the back wall 
of the structure and uh, fires up the carbide light, which I have to say at this point I have, and uh, he uh, can see that he's inside this large structure. And if you're at the top of this thing, he could never find the top because it go went up beyond any torch light, carbide light, and so on. He could muster. If you were up at the top of this thing looking down, it's like looking down a large shaft, and it is shaped like a fat crescent moon. And the walls front and back are, as he said, mathematically curved, matching each other. They're 27 feet apart. The uh, entire structure is 85 feet across. And it gets really good because he actually shot his military rifle at a point above him in a way to try to chip a piece off to bring out. And it didn't even scratch this stuff. It did give off green sparks and a terrible odor. And, of course, made a lot of noise in the cave. But the really cool part is this limestone debris that he rolled down, he's assuming is the floor of this thing. And so over the uh, the week that, it, that they're hidden in the cave, every, time, every day he goes back, spends a day there, and he's chiseling away with his uh, military shovel pick, and he chops his way through 6,000 years of limestone deposit. And under that limestone deposit, he finds the bones of a large animal. He brings out three teeth with him, which I also have. And after the war is over, uh, as he's coming back out of the Ukraine, uh, he stops at uh, one of the largest uh, uh, museums in the world. And the curator identified the teeth as prehistoric cave bear. Now, remember, this bear was underneath 6,000 years of deposit inside the artifact, two miles inside of the cave, and mm-hmm. 2,700 feet below the mountaintop and beneath the uh, the ga- uh, cave bear. There was, it was lying on a wavy, grooved grill work that goes on down, and he thought he could feel heat coming through it. He put his ear and cheek against it. There was warm air coming up through it, and at a great distance, somewhere beyond that, he could hear what sounded like a large turbine. Hmm. So basically, he couldn't... So he's at the bottom of this thing, but there's a limestone... There's, it's solid deposit. like a limestone deposit floor... He digs mm-hmm. down through this, finds the bones, and underneath of that, finds what appears to be a manufactured grate of some sort? Yeah, he was adamant about the fact that it was constructed. He said, absolutely, this is nothing of nature, because the wavy grooves were uh, uh, totally proportioned, and uh, the pattern was perfect. And uh, he measured it, and uh, he did uh, a very extensive drawing of it. And uh, all the sketches that you see on the website, they're not all the sketches, uh, but the sketches that I can put out there are directly from his 1944 diary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been there twice trying to locate the cave, tracing his history. The second trip over, uh, I covered about 10,000 kilometers backtracking and finding that everything he said about himself was true. And uh, I found his home, his parents' graves. I found a, uh, a Slavic insurgent, got him on tape, who uh, had uh, known Hurok and had heard the story about the three men hidden in the cave and something strange. Now, he never told them what the strange was. And you'll notice on the site there's a part of a letter 
from 1970 that was sent in response. When I talked to him in 1970, I was so impressed. Uh, Alan and I arranged a meeting immediately in New Mexico. We got together. I showed him what I had. We talked about it. Alan went up and talked with uh, Herak, and he said, we've got to do something about this. So we talked to APRO, to Jim and Coral Lorenzen, and uh, Jackie Gleason was willing to fund my trip over there in 1970. Hmm. So as we're trying to get everything together, through Tony, we had four contacts in Prague that could get me supplies when I got there. And that was really a wild place back in 1970. And, of course, the Russians had invaded Czechoslovakia in 68, and it just happened that these four contacts were heavy into uh, opposition labor parties. They were arrested by the Russians and killed before I could go. Hmm. So they called off the expedition, and it was 1999 before I finally got to make it. It's an enormous story, and there are a lot of legs to it that I've been finding. Hitler was looking for this cave in 1939. Seriously? And, uh, yes. So this is, this leads into a next question, Ted. Yeah. What kind of anecdotal evidence besides Herak existed regarding him? You talked about this cave, you know, having haunting activity. Or I'm assuming people other than Herak had known about this cave, right? No, just uh, Slavic. And Slavic, in this letter, uh, in 1970, where Tony had contacted Karl Matausik, who was a good friend of his, who was going to visit Yurik, one of the soldiers hidden in the cave with him, who had married one of Slavic's daughters. And they were living uh, on the uh, Czech-Slavic border. Matausik was going to visit him, and he wanted Matausik to ask Yurik if he could meet me and help me find the cave, because obviously right. a tiny entrance in the Tatras. And... Uh, and Matausik's response after he met with Yurik, if you read that letter, he uh, says that uh, Slavic was outraged because Herak had gone back in the cave to see, uh, I can't think of the term, his something. And Slavic admitted that uh, to Tony and to Matausik then later that his father and grandfather had taken him as a young man into the cave which is traditional in those countries to show the sons anything of importance to see the artifact, the outer wall. He never got inside it, uh -huh. but he, he knew what was there. And that's why he considered the cave haunted. Uh, he was a farmer, 1944. But there are a number of confirmations to Herak's story. And for one thing, I talked extensively with his wife uh, and then his sister-in-law years later, and, uh, you know, they all confirmed the stories. And he had only told Anna initially about this thing. And uh, he was very reluctant to talk about it for fear that the Russians then, they actually wound up after the war having to flee the Czech Republic because of the Russians. And they, uh, they went to Paris until they could come to the United States in 1951. Anna, actually, uh, she destroyed the diary and everything. Uh, oh. after Tony died in 1976 for fear the Russians would come and get it. She still had that fear. and But fortunately, uh, Alan and I had seen the diary. We had uh, photographed it, and we, right, we know so. what was in it. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? 
Well, since 1948, fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Ted Phillips, director of the Center for Physical Research, the physical stuff being the traces left in the wake of UFO landings. The site is ufophysical.com, linked at thepowercast.com, and we are in our final little segment with Ted. We hope there will be others because we're just getting started here. David? Indeed. Ted, when I yeah. first started reading this and I read the description of black, almost glass-like material, the first thing that occurred to me was volcanic rock. Mm -hmm. Any chance you think that's what we're talking about? Let's just play skeptic for a moment. Right, right. Well, believe me, we went through all that, and I have talked, and Tony did also. He talked to one of the the leading expert, cave experts uh, in the United States when he came over. And he uh, showed him the sketches and he described it. And he said, you know, I know in my own mind this was nothing natural mm-hmm. because of the curved configuration of this thing. And, of course, then explaining the grill work that goes on down. The uh, This expert agreed with him that... Uh, He'd been in a lot of caves, and he had a lot of uh, input from other cavers, and no one had ever encountered anything even remotely like this, and that it just couldn't be created in nature. And then I talked with uh, a couple of uh, the leading Czech geologists. Luckily, Heineck was from the Czech Republic, and they're very familiar with him. And when I could walk in an office and show them documents indicating he and I worked together, you can you can talk to these people. So Alan is still helping, you know, without going into too much detail with them, because the Russians have a big project underway to find this thing. They started this in 1981, and uh, I've even been approached to uh, to help them. You know what the answer was to that. But the chances of this being something natural, I think, would be so remote. And the fact that this thing actually predates the cave there's no way the cave 
did not form after the fact, and then right. the cave formations forming on this thing because it's large. Yeah, yeah. very odd so, stuff. I, so I you can understand why I would like to see it. Oh yeah, I'm I'm ready to go with you because I want to see this too. And and I get claustrophobic. I don't know how well I do in a cave, but I'd love to see the image rendered in this uh, in this drawing. I mean, I'd love to see that in front oh. of me. It's awesome looking. It really is uh, a crazy thing. I recommend that everybody go to ufophysical.com, click on the Project Moonshaft uh, button, and go read this. This is really fascinating, Ted. So I know we don't have that much time left. I want to make sure we get in something about the Marley Woods Project. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, well, right now, I, as I said, I started investigating there in December of uh, 1998 at the invitation of the Site One property owner. He had me thoroughly checked out and <laughs> called me to be sure I wasn't crazy. And uh, he and his wife and his family had had a very close, prolonged sighting, which is given on the site, uh, in, on December 15th of 98. And so I've been uh, investigating, researching over their imaging, uh, since that time, and currently, I have on file 193 witnesses in the area. Not one of them has ever gone public. They want no publicity. And there have been known observations, 539 known observations. We've been able to backtrack uh, to witnesses with sightings back to 1937, and uh, the latest sighting was uh, last Wednesday. And uh, I talked to the property owner, and uh, they haven't been out because it's been ice, snow, and bad. So, but it's uh, it's going to uh, start up again, and the SIU will be there. And uh, they do everything they can to make it comfortable for us and uh, give us full access. And what we're hoping to do is a satellite dish connecting to the internet, two CCD cameras live streaming 24-7 video from atop a uh, windmill of the Marley Woods area uh, back to the website. And uh, if that's where we need the donations. And if it happens, you can go on the site anytime. And if something's happening, you'll see it. And also, uh, by going to the website, when that happens, uh, people will be able to go along with us on investigations in real time. So if we see it, they see it. And uh, there are all kinds. They've had just about every sort of odd sighting other than humanoids. No little guys yet. So what are we talking about? What have the, I know that it says here that there's been all sorts of light balls. What else mm -hmm. are we talking about? Well, we've, and I actually, it's the only place that I've actually seen something that I couldn't identify. And luckily, I saw them along with my wife, the owners, and 17 other people, and took a lot of photographs, some of which are on the site, of these large amber-colored objects, which do spectacular things. And they generate uh, EM fields, which will sometimes prevent a, a, a camera from working, electric locks on automobiles, car radios go crazy with the ignition off. Cell phones don't work, all kinds of things like that during an event. And uh, these things have been seen for, um, well, like up to 15 minutes, hovering, moving, doing all kinds of things. And we have video in this DVD where uh, you can see smaller objects exiting and entering the primary objects. The primary object splits into two. 
same size objects. Uh, they, they sometimes form a haze at the rear and develop two circular lights or objects uh, behind them. But again, the small light balls are the coolest. And very briefly, let me try to squeeze this in. Two sure. typical light ball cases. A couple in their 60s going home at night, clear sky, nice weather. He stops in front of the garage. Garage door opener, uh, our opener is raising the door. His wife steps out of the car to guide him in to the garage. And all of a sudden, their mercury vapor light goes out, and the whole area is like daylight. And whizzing buyer is a baseball-sized white light, which just misses her head, goes in front of the automobile to the back of the garage and hovers, lighting the inside of the garage brilliantly, suddenly vanishes, and that's the end of it. And no traces, no anything in there. And another, again, sort of typical is another couple are uh, out near the Site 1 area watching for some of this stuff. And they're both uh, attorneys and uh, very credible people are standing 10 feet apart, all of a sudden 1,000 feet away up in a dark tree line. They see clusters of these small lights kind of playing around, going up to the treetops and above and down, very near the ground. And uh, after quite some time, two of the lights come out of the uh, pack and head straight for them. And at a point about 150 feet from the two witnesses, one of the light balls makes a right angle turn to the east, flies across the field, disappears in some trees. The second one continues straight at them, passing between the two people, 10 feet apart, shoulder height, out into, uh, across the gravel road, out into a field, a right angle turn into the trees, disappears, and they felt no heat, no cool, no sound, and no air disturbance. And that's the kind of stuff that goes on. And believe it or William, we have video of some of these light balls, and it's pretty creepy stuff. Hmm. So, now I have, I have not personally seen the light balls yet. They're not, uh, is often seen nor is easy to see. You have to be in the right place at the right time, but there are a lot of sightings of them. And uh, the longer we're there, the more uh, apt we are to get good video of these things. Intense. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a busy place, and uh, and we have full access to it. It's a, uh, you know, what can I say? A live research site, and uh, so I think I think there are going to be a lot of interesting things out of there uh, this year. This is the first year that we've been, you know, full blower, ready to, to be there and uh, uh, for periods of time. And now, Ted, on, on the on the website, there is no place I'm seeing here where one can order this DVD. What's the story with that? The uh, DVD is already out and uh, available, and we hope everyone uh, likes it. I think we're going to have to get copies, Gene. We'll That'd have be to beg and plead with Ted. We'll, we'll, we'll beg and plead that uh, Ted... Uh, send us some. Well, you know what? We well, can't do this on the air because it sounds like we're just groveling for attention. You know what? I don't care. Please send us the DVDs. Okay. We we will do that. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, we're not we groveling. Will. We're, you know, we're, we, beggars can't be choosers. Or we, don't, we don't grovel. We just beg outright. None of the, oh, yeah, no, no, not mincing words. Send us money. Send us DVDs. We'll take anything. Sounds good. Well, I yeah. tell you what, I will make a note to myself right now to send you those uh, Delphos landing site photos. 
Yeah, I'd love to see those. Love to yeah, see those. Yeah, That's really interesting. I um, like it. I, I'm very anxious to get it on the website because it is a very powerful case. Well, I mean, when you've got uh, you've got evidence like that, and you've got that weird turn of the lab, that's just that's very disconcerting. Um, you know, we're going to have to have you back on, Ted, because I have all these questions to ask you about <laughs> metal released from UFOs and the slag stuff that one of our uh, one of our forum participants pointed out might very well be a way for these craft to deal with unexpected thermal leaks. This whole idea of metal, you know, having heat dumped into it as a you know sort of as a, a sponge of sorts and it dumped off the craft you know a quick way to dissipate heat which of course the whole thing about this and going back to you know the whole issue of the indentations of landing gear one of the things that strikes me about this paradox of ufos is that in many ways we have these very high-tech craft that seem to have some very low-tech aspects to them you know you're you know that it's weird yeah, right that- well, it is, and I believe me, I have thought about that many times. One thing that fascinates me is when you can go back and look at cases, say 1940s, well, before that, 1924, uh, in daylight a guy sees a small object land and uh, leaves behind traces. And uh, then in the 1940s, basically the same object, leaving basically the same. And the 60s, the 70s. And you think, well, wouldn't they upgrade their equipment? Right. And my only response to that, uh, which is a bit on a slippery slope, is you would expect that unless they were all leaving on the same day. Interesting. You know what also bothers me about this, too, is that the UFO occupants, creatures, or whatever, are doing all this low-tech stuff Year after year, you think they had enough soil samples? Well, <laughs> yeah, unless, like Stan thinks that, you know, believes that they may be coming, a lot of them may be coming, and from a lot of different places, but I would. We're the think soil it, samples center of the galaxy. Yeah, evidently so. Maybe we're the only folks with uh, good earth, you know, good dirt. You know what? But, just, uh, we're just about out of time, and I don't want to cut this short without giving you a full opportunity once again for people who want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you have at your site where do they go right just go to uh, ufophysical.com you can go to the uh, I'll just click on contact us and it has uh, all of our uh, emails or you can just click on UFO physical on the site and it'll take you right to uh, right to me and I'd be absolutely happy to get, uh, you know, any reports, uh, suggestions, comments, compliments, donations. And, <laughs> and I have to state, Ted, you're brave because all of you, the whole group, have your uh, addresses and phone numbers up. So right. I, I, I question your mental stability. <laughs> well, the, the, in my case, the phone number is safe because, believe me, you could never get through on it because uh, I'm running the computers okay. and uh, <laughs> so it's pretty safe. You'll be up very very late at night if you do that. <laughs> well, you're, you're braver than we are. We don't put our uh, our phone number up because I can only imagine the kind of calls we would get, especially Gene 
Gene's just a, he's a troublemaker, that kid. You know, a nice kid, but a troublemaker. Oh, I cause trouble all the time. Of course, they find my phone number anyway, and I get weird calls and all that stuff. So well, I'm not immune, you know. <laughs> I'll bet. Well, you guys are great, really. I uh, this is this has been very enjoyable. I like the uh, the freewheeling uh, nature of the show. I really hate doing structured interviews. Uh, well, remember, we do not understand the meaning of the word structure. But I want to tell everybody. Good. For the past two hours, we've been talking to Ted Phillips. He is the director of the Center for Physical Research, which specializes in doing investigations for trace evidence of UFO landing and other good stuff. Ted, we want you back so that we can go to the second quarter of our questions. Thank you so much for joining us on the Powercast. Fine. Thank you, and I'll look forward to that, really. Thank you, Ted. We really appreciate your time, buddy. You bet. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.